Hello and welcome to the Leaders in Tech and E-Commerce podcast. I'm your host, Rushit Shah, and I'm also Regional Director at Elcott Global, responsible for executive search and consulting business in Asia Pacific. Our mission is to connect the tech and supply chain and e-commerce ecosystem globally by bringing forward some of the interesting stories about success and failures from leaders in industry. Today's guest is Ivan Smith, the CEO and co-founder of Altana AI. Ivan holds bachelor's degree in economics from Yale University. Before Altana AI, Ivan led enterprise solution and strategic partnership from Penjiva. Hope I'm pronouncing that correct. A trade data science company. Before Penjiva, Ivan co-managed a private equity partnership under a family office sponsor and served as CEO of IMDU Technologies, a wholly owned portfolio company providing textile supply chain automation software. Welcome, Ivan, and very happy to have you on our podcast series. Yeah, I appreciate you having me. Nice to meet you. Let's start simple. How did you reach here and why startup? I'm sorry, how did I do what? How did you reach to Eltana? Oh, how did we get here? There's a, a long story and a short story, but the, the short version is that the three of us who started Eltana were working together at this trade data science company called Panjiva. In a past life, I was interested in acquiring Panjiva when that was the business I was in um, because I was fascinated by what they were doing, which was producing shipment level data intelligence on roughly 50% of global trade. And my very close friend, Peter Swartz, was the head of data science for Panjiva. He and I have now known each other for half of our lives. He was across the hall from me my, my freshman year in college. And he's easily one of the smartest people I've ever known, and I've always wanted to work with him. So Peter was at this trade data science company, and it captured my imagination because uh, trade describes so much of the world, right? Like how things move, who buys what, how things are made. And there's so many implications to the environment, to national security, to supply chain resiliency, and, and just fundamentally how we make and, and consume the things that we do. So in 2016, I went over to Panjiva with Raf, my, my other co-founder who was working uh, with me in that investment context previously. And we said, you know, there's something big here and we'd love to be a part of it and, uh, and help create some value and see what happens. So the idea was that we would build an, a business within the business. So Panjiva had 3,200 customers, but very shallow value creation. They were paying maybe $1,200 per year. And they had amazing customers, right? It was some of the top government and logistics and multinational enterprises and banks and hedge funds. So we said, there's got to be something deeper we can do to create a lot of value. And let's see if we can launch an enterprise solutions business inside the business. So we did that. We came in and, and we um, just had explosive growth. It really took off. We built an enterprise business that was working with banks and with hedge funds, with governments. And what then became fascinating as you're talking to these customers who are paying you $200,000 a year for the data, $300,000 a year, $600,000 a year for these data feeds, is trying to understand their use case, of course. And every single one of our customers was trying to do some version of the following, which was take shipment level data and connect it to their internal data about customers, about suppliers, other counterparties, and bring in typically third-party data around business registrations, ownership, understanding who owns what and how all the dots are connected. 
sometimes vessel location data. And, and so in, in short, the idea was they were trying to build this bigger picture of the global supply chain network themselves. Mm -hmm. And we said, let's do that for you. We're very good at data science. We can stitch all this data together, natural language processing, machine learning. We can build a picture from data. And none of our customers trusted us with their data. And no other data providers wanted us touching their data. And so what we learned pretty quickly in that business was when you're a data provider, when that's your, your business, you're sort of stuck in that part of the value chain. You can only sell the raw material. So fast forward, we, we uh, sell Pangeva to S&P and that was closed in early 2018. So it was a great, great exit for the company. The investors did well, we all did well. And we said to S&P, we're like, well, the thing we wanna go do is go build this Google Maps of the world supply chain. And we wanna be you know, building this machine learning system that's learning from the data, that's integrating customer data, that's answering questions that nobody's been able to answer before. And S&P didn't wanna do that internally. Again, the same thing. If you're selling data, you're kind of selling data. You're not doing analytics. Yeah. You're not doing decision support and, and like workflows. So we set off and said, well, what if you're one of our data partners and we go build this business that we're excited about? So that was, that was the origin story. So we formed Altana in late 2018. So we're coming up on year three. And that's what we're trying to do is build the single source of truth for the global supply chain network. Think about it like Google Maps for business to business commerce. So companies supply goods to other companies at places, these facility locations, these geo coordinates, here's what's inside the box and doing that at the scale of billions and billions of records that are written in Chinese and English and Spanish and German different data types, really messy bill of lading and purchase order and business registration data. So that's our secret sauce is being able to stitch all of that data together at scale and build a picture of the world. So that's, that's how we, uh, we got here. Um, that's amazing. Uh, that's really an amazing story. Thanks for sharing. But can I ask you, is this, is, is the company coming up with a function to make the life more luxurious and better, or is the company trying to solve a big challenge? In the world, I and mean, do you really see a challenge where a lot of utility is used, a lot of information is not being used to kind of help them minimize their way of doing things or minimize cost? I think we're living through a lot of the extreme pain and challenges that that are maybe not so obvious in the surface, but under the surface, um, it's it's kind of one big theme, which is we don't know our supply chains, right? We, we know our direct vendors mm -hmm. sometimes. It turns out when we work with Fortune 500 procurement teams, they have about half of the addresses wrong for their vendors. They'll maybe, maybe have a billing address, but they won't know where the physical goods are coming from. So if there's an earthquake or a port strike or some other issue, they, they'll literally have the wrong place on the map associated with that event. And then as you go to tier two and tier three and tier four and all the way back to the soil, it just, it's a fog, right? And so why does that matter? We're living it right now. We've got port delays. We've got bullwhip effects through the supply chain because of COVID, because of trade policy dis disruptions and volatility that are having these ripple effects because of labor shortages, right? As the world comes back online. And all of those challenges that we're living through right now are 
uh, to some extent addressable if you can actually see deeper into the network and know where things come from and actually be proactive about how you can build more resilient supply chains, uh, more compliant supply chains, things don't get stuck at the border, right? So that's the problem we're trying to solve is, is actually bringing these opaque networks into the light. Interesting. But do you do you see that you know you providing that data to those companies really changes them in a way where because I'm assuming if the, there's a port condition, the port condition still remains when the data comes. So how do you think that mentality changes when they have this tool of knowledge on their hand? Yeah. So the I, I'll give you a couple of examples um, and just I'll stick with the procurement audience. So we're working with some of the biggest uh, multinationals in the world, Fortune 100s, Fortune 500s. And what we're doing is we're connecting their vendor master data and their bills and materials into this global map. Think about it like a living intelligent map. And I'll give you one example without a name attached to it. So this company learned that it had a single tier two supplier in Central America, which was the only supplier of a critical input to five of their tier ones associated with about 60% of their revenue across the business. So the product lines that contributed 60% of the revenue. So in other words, if that tier one had a disruption or stopped selling to them and sold more to their competitors, <laughs> that would be a really big problem. They in fact saw that trend happening in advance working with us. They saw that this tier two supplier was starting to sell more and more to the tier ones of its competitors. And they worked with their tier ones to go upstream and lock up capacity way in advance and then divert that production to them. Um, so in other words, they got ahead of the problem before it became one. I'll give you another example in the logistics space. So we're working with global express carriers, ocean container shipping companies, some of the world's largest logistics providers. And we have a product we call Know Your Shipment. So the idea is that in real time, we can tell you who the shipper and consignee are. We, we, we model 400 million companies around the world, so we can tell you who's who. We also make a prediction about what's inside the box. In other words, we make a classification of the customs declaration using machine learning. And then we have another feature that we call a trusted shipment rating. And these are machine learning systems that are learning from customs data, where we work with customs agencies directly, and we have a government business. So that we have machine learning systems that are training on seizures, audits, inspections, and all the safe trade that goes through, and therefore have learned what's compliant and non-compliant. So now this big global express carrier is working with us to put ratings on each of their shipments in advance, share those ratings with participating customs authorities so that they have pre-clearance through customs. In other words, a speed advantage where they're guaranteed for all the low risk lawful trade they do, they can get those through customs more quickly than their competitors. And then they can take actions to put the more high risk shipments in the back of the airplane. <laughs> so they, they, in other words, they, they have redesigned their own internal business practices and they're doing true business model and policy innovation with the participating customs authorities to have like a shipment by shipment green light rating on the safe and lawful trade. So that's a fundamental change in how global trade can work if this uh, grows to scale. Oh, that's amazing. So I was going to ask you anyway, some client case study, but I think this last one, one was really, really interesting. And I think even the procurement was very interesting because I, I have a few clients who 
have like single source vendors. So, you know, they'll buy basically a chemical which is trademarked by them and you just have to keep working and their competitor also buys the same from them. I think it was Monomer, one of my clients used, and I know that this is the biggest problem. Actually, I should connect you to them. On the next question, how long does it take from you to, you know, getting, let's say, you know, a company coming in, uh, let's say a cross-border company, logistics company coming in and, you know, implementing your, you know, software or let's say system, how long does the onboarding take? How long does it take for them to start using the product? And how long does it take for them to really start reading the data and start implementing it? Really good questions. There's, it, it kind of depends on what they want to do, but if it's just using the API out of the box, we have a know your shipment API that, that can get to value. And as soon as honestly, a couple of days. So what we'd want to do, um, depending on the scale of the client and then the trade lanes that they cover, typically you want to train machine learning systems on the data that, that runs through their business. Right. So we have, we have artificial intelligence models that are learning from literally billions and billions and billions of, of data points around the world. And those are general models. And sometimes, you know, if we're working with a specific government customs agency, we're going to get really good at understanding the cross-border flows and then the risks and illicit behaviors associated with that border. Now you want to take that machine learning system into the new environment and through what's called transfer learning you kind of tailor it to the shape of the data that uh, is running through that business. So depending on the scale of that, that can take a couple of weeks. It can take a month or two to really kind of tune performance and get it where you want. But, but today a customer could go get an API key from us in the cross-border space and then be a business. Um, what are companies who are billion dollar companies who are focusing, working only on Excel's with their data point, <laughs> not targeted, not, segregated the way they want, how do they implement your product? We're not ready for them yet is the honest answer. So right now we're working with some of the biggest government agencies, some of the biggest logistics service providers and, you know, fortune 500 multinationals. And those are, you know, big deployments of our, of our platform. What we'll do over time is we'll make the platform more and more self-serve and have those data integrations work out of the box. And when that's ready, then we can kind of go down market to the, to the customers who you know, might be in kind of an ERP plus spreadsheet kind of world. <laughs> if it's pure spreadsheet, uh, you know, that, that'll take Go a little Yep. But is there a global ERP that you have partnered with where you know, if they go and sell, your API option is already installed? Is there any global ERP you have partnered with? No, we're not there yet. So we're... We raised our, our Series A and closed it in May of this year. Google Ventures backed us. Yes. Yep. And so the next really six months ahead of us, we, we've got just these really big deployments on the government side uh, with, with some big logistics companies. And so the, the reality is that we've just got a lot of chunky work ahead of us to deliver on these things and then continue to productize and make everything more and more self-service as we do that. Once once we're over that hump, I think it'll be about the second quarter of next year. And that's the point at which we're going to be a, a nice fit for like a systems integrator or a consultancy who wants to deploy our platform more broadly. Interesting. I was actually, I had this question in mind where, you know, just so our audience know that, you know, they, they you, you raised 15 million, which was, I think, led by GV, which was um, Google Ventures and some other partners as well. So my first question was first, how do I invest in your company? Because I think it's very promising what you guys are doing. So I think I'll wait for <laughs> the Series B. Um, uh, 
Yeah, I'll, uh, my original question uh, was just a joke. <laughs> sorry, yeah, sorry, you're saying? I was just saying, I'll, I'll drop you a line before the next raise. <laughs> yes, please. <laughs> but, you know, um, I mean, and, I mean, the market you're going to solve is a very big market. You know, we basically it's estimated. I, I read somewhere that you quoted 100 billion. I, do, I think that's way under very modest value, but I think it's more than $400 billion where, you know, the data AI company which gives them solution is. So how do a 50 million, you know, kind of answer this big market opportunities? So I'm assuming there is, far, you know, next series coming soon because there's, you know, the opportunity for you to grow is quite big, right? Yeah, there's a really exciting opportunity in the market. We think we're creating a new category of product. Nobody's really doing what we're doing. Um, yeah. And uh, we haven't we haven't talked about the like federated architecture that allows us to actually connect to this data and, and learn from it um, while while preserving privacy and, and data sovereignty. But that's been the big unlock. So I'd like to go pretty hard at that. <laughs> and and uh, you know I think we're in a position to do what really hasn't been possible, right? So like, where do our products come from? Who supplies my supplier? what's inside the box, right? Being able to answer these fundamental questions. And if you get really good at that and you connect this kind of virtual model of the supply chain up to more of the physical real world supply chain participants, then I think you unlock a second opportunity, which is to put services onto the network, right? So you might, for example, start to figure out purchase order financing at scale. That's a kind of unsolved problem trade credit at scale, uh, supply chain business interruption insurance. So we're, we're doing two pilots right now on the um, supply chain insurance side where because we're illuminating the network, we're using machine learning to identify all the business interruption risks in the network. Well, the next step would be offering those same enterprises a risk transfer insurance solution. So we're partnering up with a couple of the big insurance participants to pilot that. So that's where I think you, you kind of transform from being an analytics business to actually being a platform for trusted global commerce. You can do some pretty powerful things on top of that knowledge asset. Amazing. Thank you so much for sharing. Now, there's one thing I read, which was you're quite passionate about globalization 2.0. Now, before we kind of talk more further, do you, do you mind kind of explaining what globalization 2.0 is for amateurs like me to understand? <laughs> and just following up on that, you know, one of the effects globalization does is climate change and, you know, I actually turn vegan because of climate change, honestly. So I'm more passionate about that as well. So we can talk more, but if you can start with what is globalization 2.0 for my audience. Well, I, I appreciate the question. So what I mean by, by globalization 2.0 is that whether we like it or not, the world is transitioning into some new form of globalization, right? So the, the globalization of the last 50 years which in a lot of ways was a race to the bottom, right? So, so just in time, low cost, you know, thin working capital, kind of turn a blind eye to the environmental impacts or maybe the human rights and labor rights impacts of, of how our things are made. And to some extent, the national security implications of how we produce and distribute goods around the world. And, um, and that's all changing now. Right. So you've got climate change as this, you know, once in millennia thing that's going to change everything. You've got e-commerce, which is fundamentally refactoring supply chains. You've got geopolitical competition, which is changing a lot of the supply chain shape and footprint and trade flows. 
And ultimately, you've got consumer pressure around sustainability and, and kind of a demand to know where things come from and know that what they buy and put in their bodies is you know, good for people and good for the planet. And then most recently, these COVID shocks have kind of made everybody sensitive to the fragility of this very you know, thin, fragile, connected, and opaque network, right? So all these things are coming together at once. And what I'm really excited about is the opportunity to build more sustainable and resilient supply chains and to bring more of the real world into the benefits of trade and capitalism, right? So the real economy, not just financialized, you know, if you're an owner of equities, your stock price goes up, but to actually unlock small and medium-sized businesses, especially not in the, in the West, uh, to participate in this global system. So to do those things, you kind of have to know who is producing goods, who's buying them and selling them from whom, what's inside the box, whether or not you can trust that, whether it's compliant, right, whether it's reliable. And I think if you can answer those questions at scale, you could do some really powerful things to enable this notion of globalization 2.0. So that's what I'm excited about. Yeah, I mean, for me, I, just my thought process around it is that, you know, this pandemic has given a thought process for companies and individuals to kind of look at the world differently, you know, look at uh, how you buy things, how you ship things, how do you, you know, produce things. And more and more companies are talking to each other where, you know, there was nothing called standardization, how I want to send things, how I want to produce things, there was nothing standardization. Now they have started talking about it. I've done in last, I think this, just this year, there are more than seven conferences have been, which was all about sustainability. We actually are called, uh, was part of uh, one of the events which we held was around sustainability as well. I was in a French Chambers of Commerce just last week talking about how companies are talking about being sustainable. And, and logistics companies are the last one to start talking about it, of course, because you know they <laughs> the carbon footprint is such, just so high. But now they've all started speaking about it. Even you know, 1% change is a big change. And this has started happening because of globalization. And what for globalization for me was that when companies have started thinking, not just how I'm taking advantage of things in Singapore or India or US, no, how is a company in Singapore is taking advantage of US? How are they partnering? And all those discussions have started not because they wanted to, but it was pressured by this pandemic or you know what the changes uh, that were yeah. just throwing at us. I, I totally there. You're probably my age, mid thirties. I'm 36. When I, I remember in college saying this, and and I'm kind of like living my own uh, projection of the world. But I remember in college saying this, and, I, and I've, I've kind of built my career around this, where the idea is the survival pressures that our generation is going to have to deal with are truly Earth scale. In other words, you know, as humans, we've like we've cohered in larger and larger groups as the survival pressures have required it. We went from tribes to cities, to nations, to nation states, and to some supranational states, right? The EU, kind of North American trading blocks. So you see, you know, as the survival pressure gets bigger and bigger, humans kind of get over their bullshit and organize themselves at scale. And I, I just believe that our generation is going to be the one that has to deal with earth scale challenges. Right. And so you've again globalization 2.0, you've got climate change, you've got fiat money and a financialized economic system that um, as an end game, I'm not so sure about, but it's not going to be pretty. And, um, and you know, explosion in wealth inequality that's really tearing the social fabric as we print a lot of money. 
and then I think you know you've got this um, the pandemic is just a really obvious example. That's an earth scale thing that requires global coordination to deal with. And we didn't do it so great of a job, right? So I think it's going to be our generation that has to take on those problems and hopefully, you know, with technology, with new attitudes, with new cultural behaviors, we can actually um, coordinate globally yeah, <laughs> across. Totally agree. So that, that honestly, that's what kind of deeply motivates me about what we're building. That's amazing. Just, just on the pandemic, as we are on this, you know, few companies have boomed because of this pandemic. And I've always thought that what if this pandemic actually ends, right? So that it's not an endemic, it does end. What happens to those companies? Where do you see yourself? Do you, do you think that the, the, the hike of your company, when I say hike, is really just the demand and you, you see a constant demand that your company is going to make certain changes? Is it a pandemic thing or do you think that's actually a new norm and new standard? for supply chain? I, it's, that's a really good question. I think that, I, I think specifically around supply chain audiences in the enterprise, there's more C-suite attention on what they do and budgets for you know, digitalizing and, and automating and improving what they do than ever before. So this is probably a little bit of a moment in time. I don't think it's gonna go away. I think it'll probably, you know, the next thing will come up and there'll be a burning thing. So what I like about what we're doing is it's not kind of narrow to any one problem, right? So, so we're relevant to logistics, we're relevant to sustainability, we're relevant to security, we're relevant to financial services pretty soon. So, you know, it's, we're, we're, model, we're building a living model of B2B commerce. So I think specifically around the notion of like multi-tier supply chain visibility, supply chain resilience, just in case rather just in time, I, you know, that that's definitely at a crescendo moment given the pandemic. I think it'll go down, but I think it's here to stay fundamentally. Like the, the, the thinking is changing. There's like an actual paradigm shift on, on how we organize our production systems. And I think that's here to stay. Yeah. No, I agree. That's why I said I want to invest in your company. You didn't trust me. I do want to invest in your company. <laughs> now, uh, one of the burning questions, and and I, I've, I've asked this question before on the podcast as well, and this is very common. Many, you know, software as a companies and, you know, platform as a companies are getting breached. And, and the, the reason they're getting breached is just because the data points they're connected to. So, you know, if there are a lot of data is, even if it's not on their server, they get a link to go through those data points. They are getting breached and they're getting targeted. I'm assuming you, as a you know, uh, your company has a lot of those data connect points. How do you? How are you trying to kind of fight that? It's a really like existential issue, right? You um, you lose your license to operate if you don't take care of customer data, and in our case, we're working on extremely sensitive data with some you know very important government and private sector clients. And so, you know, we said when we started the company, all right, the big idea is to build a single source of truth for the world's supply chain. And if you just naively knocked on people's door and said, hey, put your data in our multi-tenant SaaS environment, give it to us in our cloud and, and we'll manage it. You might get some small companies to sign up for it. You might get a couple of big companies to sign up for it. You're never going to get a big logistics provider to sign up for it. And you're absolutely never going to get the U.S. Department of Defense or, or you know, a, a border agency or anybody else to, to sign up for that. So 
what we built has security kind of fundamental to the architecture. And I'll explain what I mean by that. So, so we've built this hub and spoke deployment model where in the hub, we have a central knowledge graph of data. We have a, you know, our, our software and all the machine learning systems. And when we deliver to a customer, we deliver our platform, we actually take that into like a copy of the Altana Atlas and we deliver it down into a spoke, which is isolated compute environment for that customer. So it's going into a vault. The customer data is not going to us. We're bringing the compute to the customer data. And what's cool then is through federated machine learning and, and other techniques like that, what we can do is we can learn from the data and we can share that across the network, but the underlying customer data itself never leaves that environment. So what we've, what we've been able to do with this approach is, you know, not only offer something that's, that's like very novel in terms of data privacy and sovereignty and security, intellectual property protection. It's also um, just fundamentally more secure, right? Cause there's like one pipe in one pipe out, it's encrypted in transit and in rest. And because there's only those single points of entry, they're much more easy to protect. You don't have, you know, a, a universe of thousands of users and all kinds of, you know, web-based ingress and egress to, to the platform. So it's, it's still something we take dead seriously. Um, but because of the architecture itself, we, we are able to, you know, be way ahead of the game on that front. That's amazing. Because I've spoken to a few of the AI companies in past and what I've realized many of the answers were that, you know, they are not actually responsible for data because they don't have any data, right? So they're just basically putting up plug points. So it's interesting to actually learn that, you know, you are actually working on making sure that there's a security around it and you're working on security. So you are actually taking the ownership of those data rather than just saying, oh, we are just basically a plug and play. Uh, we don't do come in and we are not responsible. So it is good to know. Yeah, we, we maintain our, our own data asset. So we purchase data, we partner for data, we originate data. And so we stitch that all together in the hub, in the, yeah. you know, in the, in the central environment. But what we do is we deliver data and software and machine learning to the customer and all of that customer data integration and insight generation and the, the actual platform delivery happens in that isolated environment on the customer's servers or, you know, in their cloud. So that's, so we, we are in fact touching their data, right? But we're doing so in this, you know, very, very secure and, and, and kind of one directional way. Cool. Just, I mean, again, I don't know what phase of the company you are at because initially when there is a growth, there are certain elements you do not see, which is especially sustainability. And I think we should just touch a little bit. Would you, would you know what are kind of carbon footprints are you using? And, you know, because of course, I'm assuming you'll need a lot of data centers in right now and also in near future. Do you think about when you go and outsource it to let's say Amazon Web Servers or even create your own data centers, do you think about sustainability at all right now? Or that's not where you have... No, the honest answer is that we haven't applied that lens internally to our own footprint. I'd be pretty fascinated to do that. It's like we know what our what our um, cloud compute bill is. We don't necessarily know what the energy consumption associated with it is, but those are out there to, to kind of reverse engineer. So haven't done that yet. What we do do is by connecting greenhouse gas, like point source information to the map, we can show, okay, here's palm oil in a, in a sustainably planted plantation on degraded land. 
at the point source versus palm oil that was generated from uh, you know rainforest slash and burn where they lit a peat bog on fire and planted palm oil. And so you're you're going to have very different point source greenhouse gas emissions profile for the raw raw palm oil. And and so those metrics are out there. Those models are out there. What's entirely novel about what we're doing is we're able to situate that point source greenhouse gas emissions onto the network and then showed the downstream value chains associated with that and all the intensity throughout. So where I want to take it, you know, one thing at a time, but where I'd, I'd love to take it is to be able to, on a shipment by shipment basis, make an accurate prediction of the carbon intensity of that shipment. So not just like, what did the vessel emit by burning bunker fuel? That's, you know, it's a little bit, it's not a lot. And it's, it's that's not the hard problem to solve. The really hard problem to solve is to distinguish between, you know, a low carbon footprint palm oil product versus a high carbon footprint palm oil product because you can actually know where the things came from and how they were made. So that enables you to put, for example, a carbon tariff on the border. Yeah. No, I think many companies are, I mean, for example, I, I don't know if you've seen this, if you've got any requests from any procurement team recently on their RFPs, you have one question which would ask about carbon footprint. For example, if you talk to Apple today, because they want to go like, you know, uh, negative in carbon emission, right? Uh, they would have their suppliers ask about, you know, how much carbon footprint they're using, you know, would they, and, and they, they basically have their own quality checks on, you know, what they're calculating. So how do you respond to those? And have you actually seen procurement coming to you with those questions? They tend to have either third-party data or analytics on carbon intensity, which they want to, they want us to fuse into this map of their value chains for each of their products, or they might have what you described where it's supplier provided estimates. And in either case, those are just attributes we can, we can put on top of the, you know, the, the supplier nodes, the product nodes, and then you can kind of roll that up to build a carbon rating or carbon intensity measure. Awesome. Now moving towards, again, you know, our bread and butter is executive search. So talking more about talent attraction and gaps. So first of all, what are, what skills are you looking for the, you know, for a right candidate for your company? Right now we are hiring as many of the world's best data engineers, data scientists, machine learning engineers as we can. I mean, that's where, uh, that's where, you know, the, the, the value creation happens. We're, we're literally inventing some new things on natural language processing knowledge graph construction, this hub and spoke architecture is very novel. It's never really been done before where, so, so like, how do you have a source of truth that can be edited by the network itself in a hub and spoke environment? So how do you keep a stable view of the world where you've got all these billions of interactions that are updating your view of the world? So these are, these are like really, really hard technical problems. And that's, um, that's very much the focus right now. We are, Going into next year, we're, we're going to start more aggressively ramping the front end of the company. So sales and marketing, continue to invest in, in account management. So in that case, you know, what's important to us is people who have global experience and are kind of culturally oriented toward high empathy, curiosity, and, and like translation, because we're, we're building a global business. And, um, and we're working to solve some very, very hard, complicated problems with a bunch of diverse stakeholders. And so we can't be a monolithic culture. 
and pull that off, right? Like we can't be Uber and just go try to take over the world. So um, as we as we bring in, you know, both executive talent, but also, you know, more mid-level or junior, those are some of the things we look for is, you know, are you, are you focused on value creation and not value capture? Are you going to be high empathy? Are you going to be growth oriented? Are you curious about the world? Do you care about the mission? So th- those are some of the softer things we're looking for. Awesome. What, what would you wish you knew when you started Altai and would you have done something differently if you knew before what you know now? <laughs> yeah, I would have told our investors on day one, I'm raising 10 to $15 million to build a deep technology platform. And it's going to take me two and a half years to build products. And then we're just going to go heads down and solve really deep technical problems and get this thing birthed. And you know, part of that is naivete. Part of it is, you know, you think you can productize earlier than you can. And in our case, we're doing something that's pretty novel. I, I, I don't want to say it that way. It's a little unusual in, in the enterprise startup world. Typically, you build a product, you get customers, customer data starts to populate your platform, and over time, you build a data asset. And then that data asset becomes the really valuable thing that you can do some really interesting things with into the platform and network effects around. We built a data asset first. We spent millions of dollars on data. Then we hired really smart people to fuse it all together, clean it up, unify it, build this artificial intelligence model of the world. And then we started putting products on top of it. And we said, look, if we can build this data asset and the artificial intelligence around it, it's going to kick off, not infinite, but lots and lots of products and use cases. Um, So that's what we did. And I wish that I just told the story that way to our customers on day one or to our investors on day one, said, we're going to go heads down on this. It's going to be worthwhile. And we'll see you in two and a half years. Amazing. If you just, you know, future, of course. (laughs) (laughs) All right. I want to uh, do one, uh, a debatable topic where you know, the word artificial intelligence is used quite a lot, but I think people do not understand that artificial intelligence, the way it works, if you do not ask the right question, you do not get the right answer. So how is your data, if somebody who is not using it correctly, still going to be beneficial? Are you going to be responsible? Do you have like a customer success person within your team is constantly looking at how do we make sure that your customers are being benefited? We, yeah, and especially now, right? We, we have some extremely high IQ customer success managers. We, we call them solutions managers who work with our customers both before the sale and after the sale mm-hmm. to understand their businesses, understand their challenges, understand the technical and commercial goals they're trying to achieve, and then make sure that those all are reflected in what we deliver, but also in our product roadmap. Right. So we, we, what we're not doing is building a data science consultancy. What we are doing is serving our early adopter customers with like a white glove treatment and making sure they get value. So that's, uh, that's, that's kind of table stakes at this stage. You, you just have to uh, sort of obsess over and over invest in your, your early adopter customers. And we've been fortunate to get like really some of the top government and private sector customers that exist. We went straight to the top of the food chain. So that's part of the uh, answer to your question. I think the other one was yeah. like, you know, what 
what can't you do if you if you ask the wrong questions? So I mean, lots, right? <laughs> There's a lot you can't do. So we, we talk about it, um, machine learning versus AI. Everybody's got different ways of describing these yeah. things, but you know, some of it's marketing, some of it's technical. So what machine learning means to us is being able to pick up patterns from, from the data that become reflected in a model that then make predictions or inferences in the presence of new data, right? So I've learned a pattern, now I'm gonna see a new thing and I'm gonna make a prediction about it. When you start talking about AI, to a more technical audience, they get a little skeptical. And, and what that means to us technically is where you, you have a machine that can actually act upon the world, generate learning and improve its intelligence. So it's not just a, like a model that learns a thing and predicts a new thing in the face of new data. It's actually a step beyond that where, where the, the system is actually generating new learnings and by acting upon the world and then feeding that back in. So I'll make it tangible in the context of logistics. When we work with customs authorities or with, with big logistics companies that are moving goods across the border, we can make predictions about what's inside the box and whether or not it's safe, hazardous, compliant, whether there's fentanyl inside of it, whether there's weapons, right? And we, we have systems that can also direct a human or, you know, a, a customs regime to look inside the box in the case of uncertainty. So, so in other words, the models like, ah, I haven't seen this before. I'm not so sure about this thing, or I have, I've never opened shipments of pineapples. Let's check out pineapples today. <laughs> so, so in that case, the system itself is acting upon the world in order to generate new labeled data that it can learn from. It's not merely just, you know, I, I saw this thing before, yes, no, I, on the new thing. So that's where I think we, we get into AI and we get into some, to some pretty cool future tech, right? It's not just machine learning. So I don't know if that totally answered your question, but that, that's how I think about it. Is, you know, if you're, um, if you're kind no, of it does. Um, around a feedback loop, you can actually start to, to train and make a self-reinforcing system that, that learns over time. No, I, I said it, it totally does answer uh, the question. That's why I said it's it's debatable in a point where you know AI works best when you either the company who is building it is already putting plug points of what they should go and evaluate and tell them, and constantly update that okay this is what it is in that box. And the second is where users are basically constantly asking uh, questions and then trying to get these answers and then they're learning from that right. But asking the right question to get a right solution is important, right? The way you ask, how you ask it, what kind of data points you want to generate are important as well, right? So that's why, the, but again, the answer really is if you have a success, customer success in your team, that does help the customers a lot, right? Because I think there's an initial learning curve for something which is completely new. And I, and I think what you're doing is quite new. Um, so I think that does help customers as well. Now, yeah. you know, before we end, would you like to kind of share and plug Alchana as a decision maker in our audience can reach out to you? Yeah, uh, uh, repeat that one more time. So plug plug what about us? So, you know, kind of something you want to talk about your company. So decision makers who follow us uh, can reach out to you. Yeah, so so look, right now we are, we're focused on two key audiences in the private sector. One is logistics and specifically logistics providers who move goods across borders. 
And so, you know, executive level down to technical leadership, down to even the customer's brokerage level, we can have really deeply interesting conversations around automation, but also business process innovation and unlocking network speed advantages through customs. And then on the enterprise side, we are, we're doing some really powerful stuff with supply chain management teams. So, you know, procurement through supply chain risk management and resiliency planning, and, and also all the way into security compliance and ESG in the enterprise. So what's been really exciting for us over the last couple of months is seeing our Altana Atlas integration with the enterprise where, okay, now I've got this kind of living, breathing map of their multi-tier supply chain around the world, expand from procurement audience or supply chain management user base to include security, compliance, ESG. Everyone's kind of coming together around this idea that this is our source of truth for the extended network. So those are the, those are the you know, whoever's listening, if you're in one of those seats, uh, I think we can have a really interesting conversation. Awesome. Perfect, Ivan. Thank you so much. I really appreciate all the, you know, candid answer. You were quite candid. So thank you so much. And, you know, thanks for sharing all the knowledge with, with me and the audience. Yeah, look, I really appreciate the, the chance to talk with you and, and to share what we're doing with your audience. Uh, I'm, uh, welcome any inbound conversations. Thanks, Rashid. Perfect. Thank you for listening to our podcast. For all the show notes and information discussed in the episode, please follow Elcott Global slash podcast. Also, if you found this interesting, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or any of the podcast platform. We are looking forward to your feedback. Thank you so much.